0: Well, let's look at this quiz. Paul's past achievements were garbage to him because they only produced a self-righteousness. True. True. They were good things in many ways, but he was keeping the law. He was doing all those things as a Pharisee to achieve a righteousness that was his own, as he says. And... Not from God faith is the ground or basis of our salvation was it true or false 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 so these are technical distinctions so we would say the ground are the basis is the death of Christ. So everybody who's ever been saved is saved because Christ died for their sins. That's the basis. That's the ground. That's what saves us. Christ saves us. So faith is the means or instrument by which we partake of that sacrifice of Christ. So we're not... Now, the problem is the preposition by in English can have different meanings. We say we're saved by faith, but it doesn't mean we're saved because of faith. It doesn't mean our faith doesn't save us. Christ saves us. But it's the means, it's the instrument by which we partake of or take hold of that. Christ's active obedience is his substitutionary death. That's a technical term. And Ken, Pastor Ken will mention this occasionally. He'll talk about the active obedience oh, so. and the passive obedience. So the death is the passive. Now this, uh, theologians will tell us a lot of times we can't distinguish between the obedience. Christ's whole life was obedient. And Paul says he was obedient right to the point of death, even the death of Christ. So he... His whole life was a life of obedience, including his death on the cross. <clears throat> but his perfect right life is usually called his active obedience. And so he lived a perfectly righteous life, and that righteousness is applied to us. His death, he was passive in the sense that he didn't act, he was acted upon, passive obedience. He, he submitted himself to the death of the cross. And that death, that's a penal substitution. He paid the penalty for our sins, and so he substituted for our sins as a penal substitutionary death. That's called his passive obedience. And so that penal substitutionary death brings us forgiveness. So God punished him instead of us. But remember, heaven has to be merited. You got to have merit. You got to have perfect merit to get into heaven. And that perfect merit comes through Christ. Christ, when we, when we receive him, his merit, his righteousness is applied to us, our account. We're viewed, we're considered as righteous, perfectly righteous before God. And that's how we are admitted into heaven. We're forgiven. That's the negative side. But the positive side is righteousness is applied to us. Forensically, it's judicial. Now, God is, not, is concerned with more than just positional righteousness, more than just forensic. He wants us to be actual righteous, but that's sanctification. So we're saved, we're going to heaven, we're justified, we're declared righteous, then God begins to work on us. And he begins to make us righteous, that's sanctification. Justification is judicial, non-experiential, while sanctification is experiential. True. That's true. We have to distinguish those two. The Roman Catholic Church combines them. And so in the Council of Trent, they'll say anyone who says they're justified by faith, let them be anathema cursed. So they say that the only righteousness that's any good is your righteousness. And so you have to do through the seven sacraments You've got to build up righteousness. You've got to become righteousness. You've got to be infused with righteousness. It's their term. Not imputed. It's infused. And so it's only as as you are righteous in actuality. Now, God wants us to be righteous in actuality, but that will never get us to heaven, friends, because it's not perfect righteousness. We'll never attain perfection in this life. Well, Roman Catholics believe that they won't attain perfection in this life, so what do you do? You've got to go to purgatory. Because you're not going to make it unless you're a saint. There are certain people who go directly to heaven. They're saints in the Catholic tradition. The final outcome of our gaining Christ is our resurrection and glorification. True. True. Remember, we Paul talks about knowing Christ and he wants to gain, I want to gain Christ. Well, we think about we would say Do you know Christ? Do you have Christ? Yes, we say yes, but there's a future sense, there's a continuing sense of knowing Christ, and, and the ultimate gain is our resurrection and glorification. There is merit or worth in our faith, that is, our believing in Christ for which God is bound to reward us. False. There's no merit in our faith. Faith is the gift of God. God gives it to us. Faith is just like we're just we're just open to what God is doing. All right. Well, we'll get a start here today on our notes here, but we'll have to will be able to finish everything today. So we're looking at uh, the warning against false teachers who are these Judaizers. Uh, they come, become very prominent in the book of Galatians, clearly. And we see them on Paul's missionary journeys. When he goes to various places, he is followed often by Judaizers who come in and try to pervert the people and say, what Paul is teaching is not the whole gospel. You need to keep the law. You need to be circumcised. And he faces this. And we see it here even in Philippi. And so uh, this warning against the false teachers is often a place where Paul... Will give correct theology. He'll explain, and so first he warns them in verses one through six, seven through eleven. We saw Paul talked about his past. It was you know he thought he thought all his works were going to get him into heaven, but they were really just garbage because they don't count for anything. They're just works righteousness, and he talks about his spiritual wealth. That was what we talked about justification. You know, sanctification and glorification. I want to be found in him not having a righteousness which is my own, which comes through trying to keep the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And then uh, we're looking at practical theology here now, verses 312 through 41. Paul has warned the Philippians about the threat of the Judaizers in verses 1 through 6 and in response to their errors, has set forth his own theology of salvation in verses 7 through 11. Now in the rest of the chapter, he attempts to apply these theological ideas to the Philippians' situation. As we noted last week, verses 12 through 14 are designed to correct a probable perfectionist tendency in the church. Then in verses 15 and following, the apostle appeals <clears throat> to... The Philippians themselves to bring their behavior in line with their doctrinal commitment if they wish to grow in their spiritual lives. So there seems to be, we're reading between the lines here, a sort of perfectionist tendency, and we mean by perfectionism we mean there is this. This is this, this, this is a, a strain that's come th- false teaching that's come through Christianity right from the time of the apostle Paul right to the present time that. You know, it's possible to be perfect in this life. It's possible to attain perfection in this life. And Paul is sort of combating that. So he begins here in um, verses 12 through 14, talking about frustration and hope. I say, Paul has already stated his, uh, that his supreme desire was to know Christ fully and thus finally to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Remember this section there. What is more, I consider everything a loss, for this passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. So the through means the means of the instrument. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, I want to know Christ, yet... To know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. He now introduces a corrective, not that, as we'll see in verse 12, to remove any possible misunderstanding. Paul has not yet reached the perfection that will come at the consummation of our salvation whatever others may, might claim for themselves. Instead, he keeps on pursuing this long-cherished ambition with the intention to take hold of it because the risen Christ powerfully took hold of him on the Damascus Road, setting his life in this new direction. There is further progress to be made, and only at the end of the race will he receive the prize, which is the fullness of eternal life. We say, you know... Because John, the Gospel of John says, we have believed we have eternal life. That's true. But we don't have the full consummation of it. We don't have the glorified body. You know, we don't have all that we're going to get. So there's fullness to come when he reaches the goal line. Verse 12 Not that I have already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul has not attained all this. That is his goal of the resurrection or the full knowledge of Christ. Paul was not perfect, though he longed for perfection. There is a certain frustration that we all feel as we live our lives in expectation of what awaits us in glory. And I'm sure if you've been a Christian long enough... You've experienced that frustration, you know. Even though there's a sense in which we like sin, we often get tired of sin, you know. We're tired of our own sin, our own failures, and so forth. And we wish for the time when we didn't have to deal with our own flesh and our own sinfulness and those of others. So there is a, that's why this is the title: Frustration and the Hope. There is a certain frustration in this life with our own spiritual condition. So even though Paul doesn't claim to be perfect, he does tell us what he does claim. He presses on, he says, toward the goal. I press on to take hold. Uh, this verb, uh, press on, speaks of pursuing something diligently. Uh, as one writer says, Paul was in a hot pursuit. He was really going after this goal in his Christian life. Paul was seeking to take hold of his goal because Jesus had already took hold of him. This is the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Paul can diligently pursue his salvation because his efforts are based on the fact of Christ's work of grace in his life. We work because God works. God's gracious activity in our salvation comes first, and is the source of our efforts. Remember, we've already seen this passage in chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you as always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. God's action is prior, and will to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. John says we love, that is, we have Christian love because he first loved us. God acted first. Everything that we have is because of God's prior action in our lives. He took hold of us. When you got saved, Christ took hold of you. He took hold of Paul in Damascus Road. Verse 13, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Paul catches the attention of his readers, brothers and sisters, and elaborates the point of verse 12 that he has not reached the final goal. He uses the imagery of a runner who, was, who has one object in view, namely that of finishing the race and winning the prize. This race illustration here in verse 13, and we'll see in verse 14, emphasizes the human responsibility side of the equation mentioned in verse 12. Human effort is required in our sanctification. Paul did not look back at past failures or successes, but strained forward with all determination so that he could win the prize. The Christian life involves the continual forgetting of what is behind and the relentless centering of one's energies and interest on the course that is ahead. Forgetting does not mean obliter- obliterating the memory of the past. Paul has just recalled some of these things in verses 5 and 6. You know, He remembers his accomplishments, you know. What he was like, what he accomplished, and all that kind of stuff—he, it's not as obliterated. But the point is, he doesn't rely upon that. It's a conscious refusal to let them absorb one's attention and impede one's progress. So Paul never allowed his Jewish heritage nor his previous attainments to obstruct his running of the race. Uh, no present attainment could lull him into thinking he already possessed all that Christ desired for him that's one of the problems with the prosperity gospel that is the problem with the prosperity gospel that our brother talked about is that it's perfectionist you can arrive in this life you can be sort of perfected in this life as we noted earlier these verses imply a sense of frustration even Paul present existence did not conform totally to the Christian life he would have liked to have lived. The fact that he finds it necessary to forget what is behind is an admission of failure. Paul was not perfect, though he longed for perfection. This is a good lesson for all of us. We have to continually forget what is behind. And over the years I've met a number of Christians who just can't forget what's behind. When I was in the seminary people would come in and talk to me, uh, and I remember many would come in and just—they were just captured by their past lives. You know, they just couldn't seem to get hold of the forgiveness they had in Christ, and they would think on that. They would meditate on that. You know, we need real repentance from that, <laughs> but we have to stop looking back all the time at what could have been. Oh, if I would just have done better with my first marriage, if I would have done better with my children, if I would have treated this person, if I would have done better at this, you know we're always looking back <laughs> and we need to look back and repent and say that was wrong but we've got to look forward we've got to keep going forward um, while we never excuse our failures once we repent of those failures, those sins we only hinder our progress our spiritual progress by dwelling on all the wrong wrong paths we have taken in life. It's like the runner uh, at the end of the 100-meter dash. We always have to be looking forward. You know, you see those runners (laughs) in the games. They're looking forward. They're looking at the goal. Uh, They're straining with all their efforts to reach that goal. And that's like us. We have to be looking forward to what's ahead of us and so forth. When when you think about this, I'm reminded of uh, a race that was run in August of 1954. Some of you were not alive in August of (laughs) 1954. And uh, this was was a race. It was actually, uh, you can watch it on YouTube. It's called the Miracle Mile. Sometimes look up on YouTube and see the Miracle Mile. And uh, I think my parents got a TV about 1952, but we only had one channel, and uh, that was it. You came home, you didn't have to have a remote control because we only had one channel, Channel (laughs) 3, out of Norfolk, Virginia, and that was the only channel we had. We just watched it. So we didn't see this. This was in Canada. This was a race, and it's called the Miracle Mile because for the first time, two runners ran under the 4 minute mile. The 4 minute the, the 4 running a mile in less than 4 minutes was a barrier for a long time trying to get below that 4 minute mark. And so in August of 1954, two men, one a, one a British fellow and one an Australian, they both ran the the mile in less than 4 minutes. Uh, So there were a couple of runners. The first man was a man by the name of Roger Bannister. And Roger Bannister, just a few months earlier, in May of 1954, became the first man to run the mile in less than four minutes. So in May of 1954, he finally did it. He ran the mile in three minutes, 59 seconds. Well, then just one minute later, I mean uh, one month later, A man named John Landy, an Australian, just one month later, in June, he ran the mile in 3 minutes 58 seconds. So you have these two guys. Well, in August of 1954, there was some Commonwealth Games. You know, the British have these games like the other Commonwealth Games. And they were in British Columbia. Um, They were in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. So this was August, and this was a big deal because here we got these two guys who've broken the mile less than four minutes, and they're running in 1954. 35,000 people are watching in the stands and so forth. And so they're running. So Bannister had broken the record, 359, but then Landy came along in 358, so they're running. They start off in the race, a bunch of runners. Pretty soon, Landy, the Australian, gets ahead and he's running ahead just shortly after the race and he's ahead and then Bannister kind of gets behind him he's, if you watch the race he's 15 foot behind and he finally begins to sort of catch up Finally, and he's getting closer at the end and, you, and, and Landy is getting a little worried and he's almost at the goal line and he pauses for just a second and he looks over his left shoulder to see where Roger Bannister is and Bannister passes him on the right and beats him by eight-tenths of a second. <laughs> that race. So this is always kind of an illustration of, you know, when you're in the race, don't be looking behind and see what's behind and so forth. <laughs> and uh, that was a sad thing for for John Landy. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul continues the race metaphor and compares his Christian life to the idea of pressing on to the goal so as to win the prize. And applying this the illustration, the goal and the prize are virtually identical, though viewed from different aspects. Paul's goal was to complete was the complete knowledge of Christ. When the goal was reached, this Prize would be fully his. The word "called" is always used elsewhere by Paul to denote the effective call of God that brings us to salvation. Remember those he predestined, Romans eight. He called those he called. He justified those he justifies. He glorified. Paul is speaking of the goal and prize for which believers have been called in salvation. All right, let's just, well, we'll take time to look at one couple of sections here. I think we can do it. Growth through obedience, 315 through 16. Our growth as Christians comes in proportion to our obedience to truth. Paul now exhorts the Philippians to bring themselves into line with his understanding of the truth and follow his example since Paul's understanding is the correct one, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Obviously not all Paul's Christian friends at Philippi had the same attitude that he had just expressed. Paul is not perfect, but he is a mature Christian, so he exhorts those who are mature or consider themselves mature to think in harmony with what he has just said. Paul's view of things, things that the Philippians should also adopt, includes his willingness to rely uh, to, to not rely, I should say, on his past accomplishments in Judaism. I should say not rely. As well as his participation in Christ's sufferings by being conformed to his death and his eager pursuit of the knowledge of Christ. Paul is not perfect, but he's mature in the sense of 3.16. 3.16 says, Let us live up to what we have already attained. Maturity in that sense. Paul is living up to what he knows about Christ. That is, living up to the truth he understands. In the latter part of verse 15, Paul indicates that if the Philippians generally agree with verses 13 and 14, but still differ on some isolated point, if on some point you think differently, he's confident that God will lead them to the truth if their minds are open to his leading. The some point refers perhaps to inadequacies or inconsistencies in their outlook that lie behind the things in the first part of verse 15. So the apostle knows that everyone may not agree with him on every minor detail. But he encourages his readers by assuring them that God will lead them to the truth, to further truth, and remove any of these remaining inconsistencies. That happens to all of us. You know, we, there's some things we don't understand, we don't fully grasp, and so forth we may differ on. But if we're open to teaching and, and listening and correction and so forth, God will lead us eventually to a general consensus. That's why we can have a church like this with a doctrinal statement. We have a general consensus that we agree on. Verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. No one, however, must wait for God to reveal the truth on all points before they begin to give themselves to spiritual growth. No one needs perfect knowledge of scripture and theology to make progress in their lives. Each believer should exercise fully the degree of maturity they already possess. The verb live up to calls for Christians to maintain a consistent life in harmony with the understanding of God's truth they already possess. So Paul recognizes that Christians, although they proceed along the same path, are going to be at different stages. We're all, you and I, at different stages in our spiritual development. But we have to be faithful to the truth we know. And you have to you realize, we all realize, that's my big problem. I know a lot more than I live up to. You know, I know a lot more than I live up to. And Paul says, let's live up to what we already know. We may not know everything perfectly, we don't, but let's live up to what we know. We'll be a lot better Christians if we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Give us understanding of your word. Help us to be faithful, to live up to what we know already that you would have us to do, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.